0: We are now going to read from the Bible. We are reading from Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. If you want to turn there in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1398. We can follow along on the screen. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done truly i tell you some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the son of man coming in his kingdom
1: Thanks, Beth. Keep your Bibles open there, and we're going to work our way through that text together. I'm going to pray for us, that we might hear and understand and respond rightly to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before your Son, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Father, he calls us to follow him. We ask that we might hear his call today. And respond in repentance of faith. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If um, you've booked a flight recently, you'll know that when you go to book an airline ticket, uh, you get bombarded with optional extras. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, There's the basic ones like which class of seat you you have, that's kind of standard. Or the baggage, you know, that's often an optional extra that you can have. But there's a whole bunch of others now, like carbon offsets, optional. Uh, in-flight entertainment, optional. A comfort pack, whatever that is, optional. Food, optional, 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 optional. Actually, I was reading uh, about an airline in Europe where they're thinking about making the seat itself optional, where you can stand in the plane attached to what basically looked like a, a pole with a seatbelt on it, right? So even the seats are becoming optional. We're used to this kind of idea, whether it comes to airline tickets or to cars or to houses. There's the basic package and then there's the optional extras. You know, you can choose to bring them on or not. Um, Here's a, a question I want to ask you. What about things in the Christian life? Are there aspects of the Christian life that are optional? For example, is sacrifice an optional extra to being a Christian? Do you really have to forego things that you really want to go follow Jesus? Or well, here's another one, uh, opposition in the Christian life. Is it an optional extra? Do you really have to experience or face some form of op- op- opposition for following Jesus? Are these optional extras that you add on to the basic Christian life package, or are they part of it? I'm going to read to you just one verse that Jesus had uh, said from this passage. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus actually is saying here, if you want to be his disciple, denying yourself, taking up your cross, it's not an optional extra. It's the essence of following him. How does that hit you this morning? What an exquisitely uncomfortable thing for Jesus to say. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're actually going to look at that. We're going to unpack what it means, what it might look like. Now, to help us work our way through the text, we're going to trace some of the surprises in this text. And just a word of warning, I'm going to focus more on the second half of the passage. I understand in Bible studies people looked uh, more at the first half, so we'll be focusing more on that. But to kind of guide us as we work our way through this text, we're going to look at some of the surprises. The unexpected things that happen or are said as you work your way through the passage. So the first surprise. Someone gets who Jesus is. Finally, someone gets it. Um, So far through Matthew's Gospel, we've seen all these people kind of wrestling with who could this person Jesus actually be? Even his disciples don't seem to get that Jesus is the King, the Son of God. They're kind of mystified as to who the identity of this person, Jesus, that they're following, who he actually might be, even after miracle after miracle. They can't connect the dots between those miracles and Jesus' identity. So much so that last week, in the last episode that we looked at, Jesus said to his disciples, I think in a moment of frustration, you have little faith. Don't you get what all of this feeding of thousands is all about? Do you not get it? And then if you come on to verse 13, after 16 chapters of wondering who this Jesus might be, Peter finally makes a breakthrough. Come down to verse 13 with me. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon and Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There should be a fanfare for that bit, okay? Finally, Peter's got it. After all that he's seen, he's come to the realisation that Jesus must be the Messiah or the Christ, the one that the people of Israel have been waiting for, the one promised in the Old Testament. Peter says, it's you. You're God's son, actually, is even more what he says. Now, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what Peter had in mind when he says, you are the son of the living God, but it's clear that he gets that Jesus is exalted He's really important. So that's the first surprise. Someone finally gets it. Second surprise. Jesus completely blows his disciples' mind when he says to them, I haven't come to take the throne. I've actually come to die. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I want you to hear and note the verbs Jesus uses in those few verses. He must go. He must be killed. He must do it because, hey, this is why Jesus came. This is his mission. This is what he's come to do. He's come to go and face the music to die on our behalf and be raised again. Now this made no sense at all to the disciples. You see, they had this picture in their mind, this was common of people in the first century, that the Messiah, when he came, Israel's promised, glorious king, he would come, annihilate the Romans and just literally rally Israel and wipe the Romans off the face of the planet. And there are parts of the Old Testament that speak of a Messiah as this glorious, triumphant figure. But here's the thing, when you read through the Old Testament, there are also those moments where the Messiah, we're told he will come and suffer. Uh, We looked at Zechariah recently, and in Zechariah 12, it spoke about the Messiah who was to come and he would be, we're told by the prophet, pierced. It's also there in the Psalms, right through the Psalms, it's there in Isaiah, the prophet, But they had chosen to ignore those bits and focus on the more glorious aspects of the coming Messiah. And so when Jesus says to them, hey, by the way, I've come to suffer and to die, they are absolutely gobsmacked and horrified. Oh, Jesus. Now, for those of you who don't follow cricket, um, let me just indulge me here. I just want you to know that Australia is actually playing well. All right. We've recently won the World Cup. We beat New Zealand just last week where we won the World Test Championship. I apologise if anyone follows another team, but we're the best. (laughs) I want you to imagine, though, on the eve of the next Ashes series, the Australian captain, Pat Cummins, he's the captain, he calls a press conference, he fronts the cameras, and he says, "Uh, everyone, I just want you to know that we're going to lose. We're going to suffer humiliation. We're going to lose all five tests against England by at least an innings. And if you're an Australian cricket supporter, you'd be saying, "Uh, sorry, Pat, that is not right. That's what England is meant to do. Okay? I think that is the way that Jesus' speech would have landed in the ears of his disciples. I've come to lose. Peter actually takes Jesus aside and he says, "Uh, sorry, Jesus, you haven't really kind of understood this whole Messiah thing. You need to calm this stuff down about dying. Jesus responds to Peter with... Ma'am, what is one of the hardest things in the whole New Testament? Verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He doesn't say to him, now, Peter, I just want to correct your understanding of the Messiah a little bit. It's a little bit wrong. No, he actually says it's satanic, it's of the devil. What a thing to say i actually wonder though if you can remember jesus temptation by the devil in matthew chapter 4 do you remember how the devil puts jesus through this series of temptations and one of them was the the evil one took him up to a high place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said to him look all of these can be yours jesus just bow down and worship me just bow down and worship me in that moment, the devil was offering Jesus the crown without the cross. Do you see how Peter is coming to Jesus here with the same offer, the same temptation? Peter is grabbed onto the human concerns of glory and comfort and security, and he wants a Messiah who's going to bring all of that. He doesn't like all of this talk about Jesus coming to suffer and die. Okay, keep coming with me. Third, last surprise here. Jesus actually takes it one uncomfortable step further. He says to his disciples, not only will I come and die, if you want to be my follower, my disciple, you need to as well. You're saying that you want a cross. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. Let me put that in another language. Um, Taking up a cross is not an optional extra. No, actually, just like the Lord Jesus went to suffer and to die, he's calling us into a life of sacrifice at the very least. It's part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. Jesus. Now I want to unpack the phrase because it's kind of dense, deny yourself and take up your cross. What, what does Jesus mean by deny yourself? Um, you might be relieved to know that I, I don't think he's talking here about a life of asceticism uh, where you live like a monk and you deny yourself things like food and you wonder if it's okay to eat breakfast, for example. I don't think Jesus is talking about that. I actually think it's something more challenging To deny yourself is to turn your back on the life that you had designed for yourself. To turn your back on your own rule over your life. Maybe that's another way of putting it. So that we can go and follow Jesus. Then when Jesus says to take up your cross, he's talking about another step here where we so identify with Jesus that we too are willing to take up a cross to follow him. Um, I think we miss just how drastic that statement is because I think that the idea of a cross has been somewhat domesticated. Uh, The cross in the first century was not a religious symbol that adorned church buildings everywhere or people wore it as a necklace or an earring. In the first century, it was the symbol of capital punishment. It was associated with shame and pain. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to come after me... Hacker a noose. Wow, do you hear it? Do you feel the weight of that? It is that stark and surprising. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to come after me and follow me, be prepared for that. Now, let me summarise what we've been seeing as we work our way through this text. Denying yourself. Laying down your life. Taking up your cross. They're not optional extras it's the essence of following after Jesus um, I heard this story of a um, one of those American mega church preacher types the the kind that we have on TV here in Australia really late at night or really early in the morning right one of those kinds uh, this preacher was talking on his television show about this little moment that had happened for him where he was sitting on the plane and he was wondering about the downturn that was facing the American economy at that time and he was concerned about what it would mean for his church and for his income and apparently sitting there on the plane he had this moment of clarity and he blurted out, this will not touch me, this recession will not touch me. Uh, he did go on to say that he normally doesn't blurt things out on a, on a plane with other people there, but he forgot that he wasn't on his private jet. That happens to all of us, don't you reckon? Even to the best of us. Anyways, after he blurted that out, the guy sitting next to him asked him if everything was okay, if anything was wrong, if he could do anything. And he apparently he turned to the man and he said, this recession will not touch me because I'm a child of the king. Because I belong to the king, it won't touch me. Friends, let me just say really clearly, Jesus doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise that if we're followers, that we get a a free pass on sacrifice and suffering because, hey, we're a child of the king. In fact, he actually says something very different. He says to us if you want to follow me, it isn't a life of moving from one glory to the next. It's actually the way of the cross. Now, friends, I'm wondering if you're thinking, what what exactly does this look like, though? Jesus speaks in this metaphorical language of taking up your cross. What does it concretely look like to take up your cross to follow Jesus? I want to suggest to you this morning that I think it's going to look different for all kinds of different people. Following Jesus and taking up your cross looks different depending on the situation that God has placed you in. For some of us, here's what I think it means. It might mean persevering in the trials and tribulations of life. Whether that is persevering with a child who's running away from Jesus or persevering with economic hardship or through the illness of a loved one, that might be in your situation taking up a cross. For some of us, it might actually be giving of our comfort and our money and safety Just as in chapter 25 of this very gospel, Jesus talks about his followers feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty and clothing the naked and visiting the imprisoned. That might be for you taking up your cross. For some of us, it might mean suffering for believing, preaching, and living out the gospel. For some of us, that is unavoidable because that is the reality of our families or our workplaces. That might be for you taking up the cross. Uh, Emma and I had this dear friend from our church down in Sydney, a lady named Dorothy. She had been converted at a Billy Graham crusade and she had faithfully followed Jesus, even after being converted later in life. And that caused ongoing friction in her family. It was really hard for her. I think she was taking up her cross just to follow Jesus. Friends, for some of us, taking up your cross might simply be that work of turning away from sin and saying no to the sin that keeps on entangling you. That might be denying yourself and taking up your cross to follow Jesus. I hope you can see, I reckon taking up your cross can be seen in so many different ways, but they are all an expression of what it is to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to go follow Jesus. Now, in this passage, Jesus doesn't just tell us that we should take up our cross and follow him. He also tells us why we should do it. And his motivation here for why we should do this is because... I don't know how else to summarise this, but to say that we, we take the long-term view. You have a look at the last few verses of the passage. Jesus puts everything in the frame of the judgment that is yet to come. He's returning to judge the world. You see that in verse 27. He's coming to judge. That fact, that reality, should reframe the way that you and I look at life. So, verse 25, reading it in that kind of context, he can say, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. When Jesus talks about saving your life, I think what he's talking about are all those self-salvation projects that we get into where we try to save up everything that is good about our lives and hold on to them. However, Jesus says here, paradoxically, If you lose your life for me, you're going to get it. Because when Jesus returns, when you look ahead to what is to come, you see that any loss for him is not forever. At the judgment, everything that has been done will be brought out into the open and Jesus will put all things right. Maybe I can put this another way. Um, Jesus is saying to us, there isn't any sacrifice that we make on his account that is not repaid. There is joy to come. Lose your life for me? Well, you won't really. You won't forever. Here's my question for you this morning. Do you believe Jesus when he says that? Do you believe him that there is something better yet to come? It might seem like a sacrifice now to give up on something for Jesus' sake... But it would be worse, Jesus says, to to live for something that, well, doesn't matter. Just see what he says there in that next verse? What good is it to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Oh, friends, that's a good verse for us to hear. Because you and I, as we wake up on a Monday morning, we are going to be given a parade of things to go and give your life to. Sometimes, many times, they can be good gifts from God. But we can take them and make them of such enormous importance that we live for them. And all of a sudden, having this job is going to fulfil you, or having this holiday is going to fulfil you, or a bathroom renovation is going to make life better. We can take that good gift and make it ultimate. But if we take the long-term view, it puts all of that back into perspective. What does it profit us to get all of that, to gain the whole world, but lose ourselves? I think Jesus in these verses, he's opening our horizons so that we can actually remind ourselves of the end as well as the present, to put things in their right place. Now friends, I cannot read this text without feeling deeply challenged. I find this a really really challenging text and my guess is that for a lot of us here this morning this passage a passage like this can leave us paralyzed because it is so counter-cultural jesus call to take up your cross follow me it can be so guilt-inducing or so uncomfortable that we simply try to forget forget it and move on to other things Here is something that I think really helps us to hear this word of Jesus and to remember it. And that's to remember we take up our cross because Jesus first took up his. So that we might enter the kingdom. You see, before Jesus tells his disciples to deny themselves and take up their cross, he said first, no, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer and die so that you might be saved. Jesus isn't calling you and me to a life of self-salvation again by taking up your cross, where you try to save yourself again but now it's through cross-bearing. No, no, no. This is a call to follow someone who took up the cross for you. We take up our cross because Jesus first went to the cross for us and that makes him a saviour worth following. Now, our our friend Dorothy that I mentioned earlier, Dorothy, this lovely older lady, I'm not trying to be rude here, but just simply to say that her face was covered with wrinkles, with deep lines, from the hard life that she had known. Because it had cost her to follow Jesus. Here's one of the things that Emma and I just loved about Dorothy. She was a person of deep joy. And she had been, ever since she first heard about Jesus at that Billy Graham crusade many years before. Uh, Emma would say, actually, that most of Dorothy's wrinkles were smile lines. I I enjoy that. She rejoiced in following her saviour. Dorothy knew that he had gone there for her, and that's a saviour worth following. Why don't I pray that we would? Father, we thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus, who went to the cross for us. Father, we pray that that, the vision of who who Jesus is, our saviour who died for us, would so fill our hearts and minds that we might take up our cross
0: and follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen.